to you our scripture, which comes from Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 6 and 16 to 18. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not, left your left hand, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Hello. Welcome back. Spring break in a word other than good. <laughs> wow, we're stunned. Awesome. There we go. There we go. I mean, I know you're just so used to just giving me the automatic reply or no reply. Uh, but seriously, thanks for coming. We're really glad you're here. I'm going to move this over. Uh, for those who don't know me, my name is Sid Druin. I am the campus minister for ooh, <laughs> for almost falling podiums too, but also for RUF, Reformed University Fellowship. Uh, it's a Christian campus ministry. Uh, we exist to serve the campus, but also you all, wherever you are, however you are. And we really mean that. We want to be, again, I say this every week, but I mean it every week. We want to be a place where anyone can come. We don't want to represent one kind of per- person on campus. We want to be a place where any person from any personal background, any person from any particular scene on campus can feel welcomed, can come freely. Uh, We exist for you all. We mean that even to the extent of spiritually. Wherever you are with Jesus or Christianity, we want to welcome you. Whether you're convinced or unconvinced, whether you call yourself a believer or a spiritual skeptic, or maybe something in between or none of the above, we're really glad you're here, and we hope you do feel welcomed. Um, I also just, uh, well, I don't see anyone here from, uh, is there someone from North Cross or whatever? There we go, Jonathan. Jonathan's representing a church that brought some snacks. Thanks, Jonathan, for coming. Say hello to him afterwards. He's staying up late with us, and he brought some snacks, so we're really glad for that. Um, Also, um, thank you if you're new. If you've never been here before, or maybe you're new to RUF, or you're like, what is here? I'm not sure someone just dragged me here. Thanks for coming. Uh, thanks for taking that risk. It's obviously a big risk if you have no idea what you're in for. Uh, but seriously, we're glad you're here. So thanks for coming to, to see, be with us tonight. Okay. So this semester in large group, we have been looking at the Sermon on the Mount. We've been looking at these chapters 5 through 7 of the Sermon on the Mount. And Matthew, and I've said, before, I've said this before, I'll say it again. These chapters likely are the most famous speech by the most famous person in history, Jesus, recorded in the most famous book in the world, the Bible. So I'm trying to make a case that this is important. 
And in fact, I'm trying to make the case that this is essential Christian reading, whether you're Christian or not Christian, or you wouldn't call yourself Christian. Historically, it's been central to every generation's take on Christianity, every worldwide geographic culture's take on Christianity, and there in our understanding of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to be a disciple, all these kind of jargony terms you've heard maybe your entire life or it's brand new, fresh tonight. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. But again, I, I say this again, I think this is so important to reiterate, whether you call yourself a Christian or not, uh, we all kind of read the Sermon on the Mount the same way, just by default. Three more chapters of things we should really just get around to doing. Almost there. We had a break. No, no, now's my time. After the fourth midterm week, I'm going to get it. You know, like, that's, but that's as if Jesus' words to us here and in other places were just this sort of another exercise in building your personal resume. As if you were kind of building up a case for God to, to pluck your file and ask you for an interview. Okay, but the reality is I'd like us to assume that God's already interested in you and me. And that let's choose to read the Sermon on the Mount as if as Jesus meant it, which is an invitation to us all. Okay, so we're going to look at the invitation aspect. And we're going to look at what Jesus is showing us about what it looks like to live intentionally with him and in this world. And the way that Jesus is asking us to see the world and our lives in a new way with spiritual imagination. Hence the title for our series. I'm not going to give you the subtitle. How kind am I? Beyond good advice. Beyond good advice. Okay. And this week we're beginning chapter 6. We're in the second chapter of the Sermon on the Mount. And we're, I'm going to make the case that I think this particular beginning of chapter 6 is really an, a re-examination of your life as it is right now at Davidson. Um, whether you're in the throes of midterms, papers, reviews, problem sets, friend-making, friend-breaking, uh, furious summer planning, wherever you are, uh, Jesus is inviting us to look at our lives right here, right now, with spiritual imagination. So that's what our, I think this passage in particular has a lot to do with what it feels like to be a Davidson, at least for me and I hope for you too. Otherwise, it's just going to be a long counseling session. <laughs> me counseling myself. Okay, so <laughs> let's do this. I would have pray so that that doesn't happen. And uh, so let's pray. <laughs> Father, thank you so much to, that you're here already, that uh, you have been at work in these students' lives, whether they know it or not that you're up to something good and I pray that you would remind us of that fact even as we look at these words as we read a passage that may be just so familiar to some people and may just not even have been heard of by other people and maybe somewhere between for most of us and I just pray that you would meet us where we are as you always do that we'd feel your presence that we'd know that we've encountered the holy and living God that we would be changed by that experience that you'd make us more tender and more sensitive, but also maybe a little bit stronger, more mature. I pray, Jesus, that you be most of all uh, high and lifted up and that you'd be more believable and more beautiful to the eyes of our hearts. That's our prayer, and we pray um, that you would meet us in this time. Thank you for this time from all these students, and thank you for the way that you use things like this. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> So um, I have some relationship news. I just recently got back together with Netflix. Um, we had broken up for two years. It was complicated, messy, and I said it was me, not you. And Netflix said the same. So while our relationship has been always a bit a little bit hot, cold, a little bit on, off again, 
Uh, recently, Netflix and I have been bonding over a show. Uh, this show is Black Mirror. Anyone? Okay. Okay, a few people. Is Black Mirror too dark, too quirky for me to mention? Do I need to add some sort of, like, softball, like, Stranger Things? I watch that, too. It's okay. You know, like, don't judge me. <laughs> anyway. Okay. I recently reached season three. You already know how deep diving I'm doing this. Season three, episode one, Nosedive. Okay, I don't know if you've seen this nosedive. Um, well, honestly, I watched it, but that's, that's a, a stretching of the truth. I had to watch it in three installments. Three separate sittings of nosedive because I could barely make it through. It was pretty painful. I had this like, strong gut-level reaction. And at first I wanted to believe because, you know, Black Mirror is really great about talking about in a heavy-handed way how technology can make us a hot mess. But, or maybe I thought the next step was like, well, maybe this is really uncomfortable because, you know, you all, Davidson students, you know, are really wrestling with technology, wrestling with social media. And then I really got like ruthlessly honest with myself. And I really realized I felt nauseously anxious every time I watched it and thought about it because it describes how I feel and my struggles. Okay? So... If you're not familiar with Nosedive, which I'm guessing a lot of you are not, essentially this episode of Black Mirror is set in the near future, okay, where everyone uses eye implants and mobile devices to rate other people on a five-star system. Okay? So baristas rate their personal interactions, their connection with coffee customers, and coffee customers rate their personal interaction with baristas in a one-through-five-star system. Okay. Friends evaluate pictures or posts right, of other friends, one through five stars. So people see each other jogging. They have their, their mobile device. They rate the other person's smile or the way they said or didn't say, hello, good morning, on a one through five star system. You get the idea. Everything's rated. Everything's ranked all the time. Anyway, these personal rankings are based on these interactions daily, but also on the personal ranking of the person who's rating you. So essentially, you get to maybe feel good or bad based on this person's ranking of you. And not only that, they determine the overall ranking, the sum total of your rankings over the course of a day, over the course of a lifetime, determine your personal success or failure in life. Here's how that works. To get a better job, to get a better place to live in this world, you have to have a better star rating. Okay? To get an airplane or to get a quality rent-a-car, you have to, it depends on how many personal stars you have, okay? And you constantly see who rated you, how much, how many stars they rated you with, and there's some total of stars, and it's by, like, decimal points. So, on a plot level, this main character who is, like, painfully earnest, named Lacey, is a respectable 4.2 stars. 4.2 out of 5, that's pretty good. But she needs to get to 4.5 stars in order to get the dream apartment, Okay? And so she accepts this gig as the maid of honor to a childhood frenemy, this girl that she used to be close with, but they, had, they kind of parted in a bad way. But her former childhood friend has over 4.5 stars, and she needs the upvotes. And so she figures if she can do well enough at the toast at this wedding, she'll get the upvotes to put her over 4.5 stars so she can get the dream apartment, and more importantly, she can start to be a success with her life. Okay? And so the episode focuses on Lacey's quest to get to the wedding and to get over 4.5 stars and to make it in this life, to be enough. 
And I think what disturbs me so much about this episode, without going blow by blow through it, is how true it actually feels. Okay? Um, again, I do actually stress out about technology. I'm very tempted to say I don't, but I do. Uh, I, I worry about things like eye implants. I can't even... Contact lenses make me nervous. Um, okay? Or, like, our social media profiles. I, I stress about how much that matters and how important that is. Um, and I... And I guess also, but all of this really, I just stress most about myself, okay? Uh, how I come across to others, whether people like me, what people like about me, and of course, how what people think of me will determine my future, my future success or failure, okay? And certainly technology has made all of this evaluation process so much more precise. Think about it, right? I know exactly what people like about me, Okay? Because they can instantaneously let me know. They can click a button that says like, okay? Or they can make a comment. Or they can, or on some change in my personal appearance, or my newest hobby that I've Instagrammed, or my political or personal or religious opinion that I post, or maybe share on Snapchat. But our passage tonight reminds us that this isn't just about technology. What other people think of us, this concern for ourselves, and this concern for our futures, predates social media, but well over 2,000 years, at least. So look at the beginning of Matthew chapter 6, and we see the description of the way that even religious piety can often succumb to this anxiety-producing self-consciousness. Okay? How well-meaning activities like charitable giving, or praying, or fasting quickly become ways to be seen, ways to be praised, ways to secure a more successful life going forward. But in Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, and Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 through 18, Jesus is not only diagnosing this false tendency to perform, Jesus is prescribing. He's prescribing a physical therapy, a different, more real practice, and an internal medicine, seeing ourselves as God the Father sees us. Okay, that's a little too clever, so I'm just going to say a little bit more simply, okay? In these verses, the beginning of chapter 6 in Matthew, you see that Jesus gives us a diagnosis about our false tendency to perform and prescribes different, more real practices as well as trying to see ourselves as God the Father sees us. So that's his diagnosis and his prescription. And I think it's really interesting because Jesus illustrates the spiritual diagnosis and prescription by using three related and popular first century devotional practices. Giving, praying, and fasting. And Jesus lays out these three practices in an exactly parallel pattern. The bad way to do the practice, the good way to do the practice, the special reward for doing it the good way. Okay, you see that over and over again in, the, in a different patterns. And so because there's this similarity, we're going to do things a little bit differently in our outline, if you're looking there already. We're going to approach the practices in the verses all together and thematically. So we're going to look at first... Jesus' diagnosis of our performance problem, and there's a scattering of verses in your handout on that, okay? Verses 1, 2, 5, and 6. Okay, second, we're going to look at the first piece of Jesus' remedy, what to do and how to do it. And we're going to look at verses 3, 6, and 17 for that. And finally, thirdly, we're going to do verses 4, 6, and 18. And we're going to look at the second piece of Jesus' remedy, why do it and who to do it for. Okay, so that's what we're looking at. Um, I debated making this two points, but, you know, you needed the third point again. It's been a while, so we're going to do three points. 
So I know some of the verses are out of order, and that might freak some of you out who go to RUF every week. Uh, breathe easy, because I'm starting at the beginning, like I always be in the beginning. And verse 1, and Jesus' diagnosis of our performing. Okay, so if you look at verse 1 with me, Jesus go, dives straight to the root cause of why we feel all this need to perform. He puts it this way, because of practicing your righteousness, or so beware of practicing your righteousness, right? Beware of practicing your goodness or what you're good at. That's another way of saying that. So beware of practicing this before other people in order to be seen by them. So Jesus is skipping over extenuating circumstances. He's skipping over specific instructions to begin with something simple but extremely difficult to hear. Okay? We are often doing good things for bad reasons. We're often doing good things for bad reasons. Okay? Whether religious or definitely not religious, some part of our good behavior is not done just for the person we're trying to serve or connect with. It is done to be seen by the watching world as good. Okay? We want to be, get the recognition. We want to get the notice. We want to get the rating or ranking. We want to be thought of as a respectable person. Okay? I, and I really, I love the way that the teenage prophet Holden Caulfield put it in Catcher in the Rye, right? He's the best at seeing through all this stuff. Okay? My, my teenage hero, angsty. If only. If only I could match that angstiness. Sometimes. Close. Okay, so, if you do something good, then after a while, if you don't watch it, you start showing off, and then you're not as good a person anymore. Okay, so this is holding Caulfield. If you start doing something good, then after a while, if you don't watch it, you start showing off. And when you start showing off, you're not as good anymore. Okay? It's helpful to kind of put that in context. But Jesus' diagnosis that's underlined by Mr. Caulfield, okay, goes deeper still. In the original Greek, the word, word translated to be seen, it's just one word, and it's a Greek word, I'm going to try to do this as well, theathenai, okay, theathenai. Okay, and the reason I'm giving you that word is because it refers to a performance given in a theater. Okay, the, the Greek word theathenai leads to the English word okay, theater. So to be seen is actually technically referring to a performance given in a theater in the Greek. So Jesus is telling us the human temptation to turn a good thing, like charity or prayer, into, is, is actually to turn it into good theater. To turn it into something that we want to make a performance out of. And this is why Jesus also uses this really evocative word, hypocrites. He uses it in verses 2 and 5 and 16. In the Greek, the word hypocriti okay, is again a technical the- theatrical term. This time it's for play actors. Okay? Hypocrites were play actors who in that time wore external masks to represent different characters and these masks also represented internal characteristics like emotions. Does that make sense? So you can see the obvious parallel that Jesus is driving it here. What a great metaphor. Oftentimes our outside or external appearance or image doesn't match up with our inside feelings, our internal character. Okay? Just like actors who play different characters or different emotions, even though they're not feeling them. Okay? And so pastors like me, especially perhaps, but also non-professional Christians and even non-religious people can wear a face that tells the watching world a few things. Okay? Here's, here's some Davidson faces that I see, okay? including mine. Applaud the fact that I never sweat. Okay? Or, see, I refuse to get sadder down about it. 
or praise me because I'm trying so much harder than you're trying. Okay? So, of course, most of us would never actually say that out loud. Imagine the social ridicule that would happen in the lobby of the library if you said that. Um, but we never confess our insecurity, okay? Or maybe we just don't even know that we're wearing those masks or saying those things by the way that we present ourselves, okay? But perhaps there's easy places culturally to, to spot the mask wearing or the hypocrisy. And obviously one of them, I have to confess, is the church. Certain churches in particular are sadly very good at hypocrisy. Also, another place that I really prefer and, and love is reality television. Okay, what a great example. How could one bachelor equally and fully love three bachelorettes at the same time? <laughs> Seems like that's a little bit of hypocrisy. I don't know. Play acting anyone? Okay, moving on. Okay, but beginning in verse 2, okay, we're moving back to the Bible. I know you're in the bachelorette at this point, or bachelor. Okay, so, but beginning in verse 2, Jesus gives us this incredibly humorous field guide to spotting the symptoms of hypocrisy in his world around him in the first century, but also, I'm going to argue, in the 21st century as well, in our world. Okay, so Jesus is giving us, he's giving us this behind-the-scenes look at how we can make a show of doing what's good. Okay, he's giving us a behind-the-scenes tour and Jesus begins this tour with charitable giving. Okay? Likely, Jesus is again using this idea of hyperbole. Because, I, I mean, as much as I like this image, I love this image. I love the image of a giant brass section calling attention to the exact moment when a man dressed in a first century three-piece suit digs 10% of the coins in his pleated pocket out and gives it to charity. I love that image. I think more people would give if their gift got a marching band attached to it. I think more people would do that. And that's actually Jesus' point, isn't it? Do you see that? To easy, it's easy to give when they name a building after you. Or you get to cut a ribbon. It's harder to give when you don't get public credit. Or maybe you've given a lot of money and it's supposed to be called one name and it's called F instead. That's hard to give when that happens. Okay? All right. File that away. When you're thinking about giving to Davidson in a few years, choose your building carefully, okay? Also, perhaps when you think you can't give now because you can't give a lot or enough, file that away as well. Why is that my temptation not to give at all? Is it because I can't give enough or is it because I can't get enough credit for what I give? Okay. Jesus continues his tour of three common first century practices in verse 5. Here Jesus points out that certain people love to pray in public, up front at the church or synagogue, and at certain parts of town, maybe even the cross streets that really need prayer. Okay, I know this is, some of you are like, phew, not my problem. I know many of you hate public praying. Um, I, I teach a freshman Bible study every year. I see this happen full, full force, okay? Not many people volunteer to pray, okay? And you're thinking, finally, not my problem, not my problem. Okay, but actually, these scenes were likely of people who were not out loud shouting their prayers, but quietly praying in such a way that everyone knew they were quietly praying. Okay, so they were standing, making a scene of themselves without shouting it out. Okay, there's a rabbinic law, actually, that talks about not shouting your prayers, but quietly praying in public. And that's how we know that. Okay, so I'm going to say this. The, this these commandments don't rule out public prayer. But Jesus' ideas here help us ask the question, do I pray and study the Bible privately with God as much, and if not more, than I do publicly with others? Okay, some of you, that's, 
you're not doing a lot of that publicly, but for people like me, very, very convicting. Very convicting. I pray like six times a day with people. And then I go home and I'm like, oh, please, mercy. Okay, so I can't pray again. Um, okay, so that's convicting for me. But also maybe for some student leaders here who are in Christian ministries, that also can be convicting. Or people in churches who go up front and pray. Okay? Finally, verse 16. Jesus is pointing out how we are when we are doing something really hard, or we're doing something that's really meaningful, or that plays well to an audience... We like other people to know about it, but we actually like people to know about it without us telling them that we're doing it. And so we do these kind of things like dropping juicy hints about what we're up to or creasing our foreheads, looking pained when we're doing it, or maybe trying to look as serene and serious as possible, like kind of like sage, sage-like, you know. Um, but for people like me and maybe a few of you, you're kind of going... You're looking at these like generous, prayerful, self-sacrificial, Lent all-star things. You're like, that's not me. That's not a huge temptation. Okay, for most of us, practicing goodness so people can see how good we are looks very different than these pious practices of the first century. I would argue at Davidson, here it comes, it often looks like busyness. Okay, uh-oh. Okay, now I've offended the whole audience. Just wait, it gets worse. Okay. <laughs> For instance, we all instantly know the 4.5 star and above busy students, don't we? The ones that are weighed down with high achieving academics or important extracurriculars, we just know who they are. Okay? For me, it's like this unconscious religious practice to fill my schedule to the breaking point between significance and stress, <laughs> to push the limits of my productivity and efficiency to the point of self-condemnation. <laughs> Okay, And while I think I'm actually more of a 4.2 star busy, it's like Lacey and Black Mirror, more of like a respectable 4.2 busy, uh, trying, but I also really at the same time trying to be above a 4.5 secretly. Not anymore. I do like busyness. Okay, I do like busyness because of the respect that busyness offers in a place like Davidson. Okay? And I learned this early, and I learned this often. Okay? But let me give you an example from my life. I've been using a lot of stories in my first job, but we're just going to keep going there. Uh, as a young 23-year-old teacher, I got assigned middle school carpool duty, and I knew things had to change. And so I had a scheme. How do I get out of carpool duty, and how do I get out of any future duties being assigned to me who has no family and is 23 years old and is first year teaching? How do I instantly seem older and somehow more important? Da -da -da -da. I made myself busy. I picked up activities I wanted to do, and I looked busy. Every time I entered the faculty lounge, I like scattered the papers in my grade book, <laughs> tussled my hair, looked all like worried and, and concerned, and walk ran into the coffee to get coffee or to check my mail. And everyone's like, I can't ask him. He's so busy. Okay? True. It's a true story. Tips, tips. Okay. So, years later... Despite my efforts to the contrary, I still find my schedule is so full that I'm again walk running to the next thing I'm already late for. If you've ever met with me, you know that. Why? Because I want to be a 4.5 or above pastor, a 4.5 or above father, a 4.5 or above husband, a 4.5 or above friend, and the list goes on and on and on. Okay? In an article that's called Insignificant is Beautiful, it's worth looking up, by Mark Golly. This is an article that points out the stunning truth, okay? 
oftentimes that future professional significance that we're chasing right now, right? The, the reason that we're busy with the college resume building, that future professional goal, oftentimes what it's really after, even the social justice goal, even the world change goal, these good actions like busyness, like social justice, like world change, can be, in his words, rooted in the desperation to feel known and to know that our lives count, to be truly worthwhile and interesting. I'm going to say that again. Sometimes we're doing these good things for the wrong reasons. Sometimes we're working so hard now for a future glory that is rooted in desperation to feel known and to know that our lives count and to be truly worthwhile and interesting. I told you it was going to get harder. Okay, so now everyone's awake, a little frustrated perhaps, just uncomfortable, okay? And that's Jesus' intention. Okay, I'm just trying to follow Jesus here. Okay, so like his diagnosis, his first remedy, our second point is going to feel extremely uncomfortable because we are so used to living with mixed motives, whether that's unconscious or conscious, right? So notice Jesus' prescription is not don't do any good anymore, okay? He says when you give to the needy, when you pray, when you fast, not if you give to the needy, if you pray, if you fast. He's saying when, not if, right? So in the words of a friend, John Stone, Jesus is saying faith means you do stuff. <laughs> faith means you do stuff. It's pretty, pretty straightforward. So Jesus' first remedy is going to feel like physical therapy. Okay, It's going to push us to do the same things, but differently, in a different way that's more real and more authentic and more fully human. Because as comfortable as it is to sit in our chairs and cross our legs or slouch in our chairs, our bodies were made to sit upright and more to move around regularly. Okay, And likewise, our good actions are meant to be done not for the approval of others, nor to gain us respect or notice or even applause. Take it from someone who suffers from chronic lower back pain, me, and a pride problem, me again. Okay, those are my little two cents. So Jesus is giving us this rehab routine. Go with me on this image, okay? And he's again focusing on basic first century piety, giving and praying and fasting. But Jesus' advice about giving and praying and fasting isn't kind of what we want. It's not practical like we want it, as we hoped, right? Even when Jesus speaks about what we should do, he's more often got the motives of what we should do in mind. For instance, unless you are a sleight-of-hand magician, okay, unless that's, that's who you are, unless you're very good at the coin trick or the handkerchief trick or the rabbit trick, okay, it's hard to picture how to give with your right hand without your left hand knowing it. Okay? Instead, Jesus this means that we just should give so routinely and so spontaneously that we forget about giving. And we don't think about giving even enough to let other people know about it. Okay? Or take Jesus' advice on prayer. Is proper prayer only done in the closet with the door shut? <laughs> I'm in trouble. Okay? Or does Jesus mean a major part of our prayer life is simply to sit or stand in the presence of God, one-on-one with God? To privately be you as you are. To privately be me as I am. With God. Who knows exactly who we are. To know that God will not despise a broken and contrite heart. Whether that's yours or mine. 
And finally, verse 17, Jesus' advice on fasting is not what to fast from or how long. The real questions we want to ask, right? Because fasting scares me. I want to ask those kind of questions. How long, Jesus? What, what, no, no, like water? Water and food? Food? No water? Talk to me, okay? Instead, he basically says this. Make sure you wash your hair and your face, brush your teeth, and avoid dressing like a monk or a mourner. Just act and look normal. You've got God's attention. You don't need anyone else's attention. Fasting is not for that. Okay? So I'm going to apply these examples yet again to our 21st century Davidson lives. Brace yourselves. Our piety. And this is what Jesus might say. Again, might. I would, I'm hesitating to speak for Jesus, but I'm going to sort of do it. Okay. Okay. He would say something like, yes, go and do great stuff. Study hard. I love that nerdy part of you. Okay. Give it the time and the space to breathe, though. Right? Don't sink your curiosity under a need to read a certain number of pages per hour. Underline what you like. Not just what your professor will like. Not just what's on the exam or going to be on the exam. Yes, get involved. But do you really have to be the head of every organization you join? Okay. After all, why did you join it in the first place? Do you care about the resume line item? Or do you care about the people and the cause? You get to just make time for something because you like it. I know. Okay? And you can't fix your busyness with busyness about your schedule. Or lectures to yourself about personal efficiency or productivity. Sid, you, can you just calm down? Sid, could you just be a 4.2? Honestly. Who cares how many stars they give you? I mean, they don't even really know the real you anyway. I do. Finally, Jesus might ask us about our future ambitions... Those ambitions that drive our current, present-day busyness. Okay? Are you as interested in taking care of people who have no future as you are in making the world a better place for the future? Will you see the significance of changing diapers, filling coffee urns, and supplying others' soon-forgotten daily needs? In other words, if the insignificant is beautiful to Jesus, do you feel permission to be ordinary look you don't have to be ordinary if you cannot be ordinary great i'm excited about that game change go please okay but you can be ordinary and that's okay and jesus loves you okay my guess is that if you're still listening (laughs) you haven't shut your ears or laughed at this point Uh, If you're willing to hear this passage out, hear me out, go there with Jesus' remedy. You feel that what Jesus is is promising here is like theologically or practically impossible. Okay, you feel like Lacey in the black mirror. She has a scene where she's trying to get to the wedding and she's forced to hitchhike with a truck driver named Susan, whose rating has dropped below 2.0. In this cab of the big rig, Susan tells Lacey that, you know what, the rating system doesn't work and it enslaves people to people pleasing and Lacey is simultaneously horrified and intrigued okay what Jesus is saying here about how to do good works should initially sound horrifying but also I'm hoping a small part of us will find it intriguing even attractive because it sounds like freedom it sounds like honesty 
It sounds like relief from performing. But how do we do good? How do we live life well without getting caught up in getting recognition? And this question, of course, leads us to our third and final point. Okay, Jesus' second remedy. And Jesus' second remedy is an internal cure. That's a medicine we have to take at a heart level. We need to change the audience we're performing for. We need to change the audience we're performing for. When we shift our eyes from other people and how they react to what we do, we're tempted to try to look at ourselves and to not look anywhere else. But Jesus is much more realistic about us than we are about ourselves. Okay? He knows the reason we want to be seen and affirmed by others is that we're deeply, I'm deeply self-conscious. And when we look at others, or sorry, when we look at ourselves, we worry that we're not enough. That we're not doing it right. That I'm not likable. That we're weightless or invisible somehow. And so we look elsewhere. We look to what other people think. Are we enough? Am I doing life right? And we actually sign ourselves up for a five-star self-rating service over and over and over again. But verses 4 and 6 and 18 of our passage are suggesting that we take our eyes off of others and we put them on God. That we ask our deep and extremely insecure questions to God. That God is our ultimate audience, an audience of one. Yet verses 4 and 6 and 18 also take pains to consistently describe just what kind of audience God is. He's, He's in secret. He sees in secret. That is, unlike human beings, God doesn't judge by appearances or externals. He can't be fooled by what we do or by what we project ourselves to be. He knows you top to bottom, inside and out, every blemish, every wrinkle, every anxiety. He knows every care and every every dignity and every hope. But God is described over and over again, this same God, as your Father. Father. The same God who sees every thought, every word before it hits our tongues, every dream, every nightmare we have waking or sleeping. This God who sees everything about us, not as as we wish to be, but as we are. This same God, through Jesus' death, on a certain particular historical cross, on a certain particular day, is our Father. And this means he knows what's behind the plastic smile, the wandering eye, the schedule stress, and he's finding every way possible to give us five stars, to make us a 5.0. He validates us over and over and over again. We'll just listen. You're enough. Yes, I see you. And you know what? You're so important to me. Yes, You will be okay. And to paraphrase John Stott, this different audience causes a different performance. This different audience causes a different performance. When we continue to take the medicine, when we continue to spiritually imagine how God sees us, to become more and more conscious of God, we become less and less self-conscious, more and more self-forgetful. Even as we do things like give generously and pray intimately and hunger for heaven, 
we begin to play instead of perform. We begin to hear the beauty instead of hear the mistakes. We feel secure instead of feeling insecure. And here's the thing. A lot of you just don't believe me. And that's okay. Here's what you don't get about God as the Father. I'm just going to put it out there. I'm reading minds. Your dad in heaven loves you more than you love him. He wants to be with you more than you want to be with him. How do I know this? Two reasons. God's heart is far bigger, and his heart is far more perfect than your or my heart. But I also know that you don't get this because you're not a parent yet. You don't know what it's like to be a father. I've never liked kids very much my entire life. <laughs> their, their hands are sticky from who knows what. They come up very to my shin because I'm tall. Okay? But when I saw my newborn twins laying in a hospital plastic crib, when I saw them nearly naked and squirming with life, I knew that I loved them as much as anything else and anyone else I'd ever loved. If you had said at that moment that I saw them, that they were anything but beautiful, I probably would have punched you in the nose. <laughs> Last week, I was standing in this really long line, the sixth full day of six full days at Disney World, about to go on a ride that I could care less about, something like the people mover or something, right? <laughs> my, my kids were squirming again, this time, not in a plastic crib, but climbing the railings and generally ignoring me, okay, even though I tried to engage them. And, and at that moment, that exact moment, I felt this long and deep and sweet ache, a joy in my children, a love for them, for them even as they intentionally ignored me. I'm just sharing two memories because that's how I feel about my kids. And I fail as a dad every single hour. Just imagine with me what God, as your father, thinks of you every single hour. Would you pray with me? Father, um, thank you that we can call you that. Thank you that we get tastes of what that looks like in our real lives. That we've all maybe had an experience we can't explain or a moment of where we felt some sort of presence. Some of us would say it's yours. And I pray that you would be with us in our doubts, be with us in our performing, and unclench our fists against ourselves. Help disgust, not rise to our lips. But help us to see ourselves as you see us. And help us to make that to make a world of difference in a stressful time, in a stressful place that doesn't need the internet to make it feel like we're rating on a rating scale all the time. I pray that you would be with us. That you'd help us to know that you're for us that you'd remind us that you sing awfully loud with rejoicing over us. And it's uncomfortable and it's embarrassing, but mostly it's just embarrassing for you. But you don't care. And I pray that you'd remind us of that truth. You press it into our hearts. 
you help us to bathe in that medicine. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.